This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, how safe is your drinking water? What's it like to live drinking very small amounts of like 600 different chemicals? Nobody knows, and there's no scientific way to study this. How safe is your drinking water when Radio Health Journal returns? People with more formal education and jobs requiring complex thinking may better withstand Alzheimer's disease. New research reported at the 2016 Alzheimer's Association International Conference suggests that lifelong mental stimulation builds up what's known as cognitive reserve, providing resilience against the onset of Alzheimer's. Dr. Maria Carrillo is chief science officer at the Alzheimer's Association. It's becoming increasingly clear that both lifestyle and medication will be important in treating and ultimately preventing Alzheimer's disease. These new studies add to the growing evidence that lifestyle factors can help build resilience against memory decline and dementia. They show that formal education and complex work may provide some protection even from risk factors such as an unhealthy diet or blood vessel problems in the brain. The new study suggests that work with people rather than data or physical things is likely responsible for the protective effect of a complex occupation. Find out more at ALZ.org. Water is the source of life on our planet. We can go only a few days without it. And since our bodies are made of mostly water, the quality of the water we drink has a big influence on how well we function. Fortunately for us in the United States, water quality is generally pretty good. We have water that is often unused by other people before we drink it. We're not a country that is as short of water as, say, China is or many parts of Europe. And secondly, the science behind the drinking water regulations are pretty good, and many people turn to the U.S. EPA globally in terms of the kind of guidance for what's safe and what's not for water and how to treat water and things like that. That's Dr. Jeffrey K. Griffiths, professor of public health at Tufts University and former chair of the Drinking Water Committee at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. But while he says water quality is generally okay in the United States, it varies widely from place to place. Many cities, let's say they're on a river and they're taking water from the river, and that water's been used by somebody else and somebody else and somebody else above stream to them. And, you know, different communities have different resources. The way we pay for drinking water in the U.S. is it's up to each town. And so if you have a well-off city or state or something like that, They can afford to do stuff with all the bells and whistles. And you may be looking at a relatively poor compared to that circumstance. Rural town where they really have not got much of a tax base and where they may be struggling to do the minimum. So there's quite a bit of variation. But even wealthy communities that provide additional layers of treatment can't guarantee that their drinking water is absolutely pristine. Sometimes people don't want to hear about uncertainty in life. I'm a physician also, and one of the things that people expect doctors to tell them is yes or no. And I think with something like drinking water or with air pollution or something like that, there's a more nuanced circumstance where there is a gradient of risk. We're not drinking sterile water. We're not drinking distilled water that has nothing in it. It's always going to carry certain chemicals or it's going to carry certain treatment or it's going to reduce the number of bacteria or reduce the number of viruses or parasites. But there's very little out there that will absolutely guarantee 100% 
that all of those things are gone. But while no one really expects sterile water to come out of the tap, we do expect the most dangerous things to be gone, the disease-causing organisms and toxic chemicals. However, you may be surprised to learn that many chemicals, especially new ones, are completely unregulated. And whether many of those chemicals are safe or not is a complete unknown. Griffith says the law is written in such a way that the EPA hasn't clamped down on any new contaminant in 20 years. It can't say something like, oh, there's a chemical in the water, and we don't really know that much about it. It's a brand new chemical made by you know, some new company or something like that. But it looks just like this other chemical that we know is bad. They can't regulate it on that basis. They actually need data on that chemical. And so, you know, there's like tens of thousands of new chemicals that are introduced into our environment every year, and we don't know anything about them. And you can produce a chemical that's useful for manufacturing or it's useful for something, and you're not required to test it in rats and see if it makes the rats grow three heads or something like that, or whether or not it affects their reproduction, or whether or not it gives them hypertension and tumors and stuff like that. You know, the assumption is kind of that these chemicals can just be put out there and that they're going to be okay. In other words, a chemical is allowed free use in the U.S. until it's proven dangerous. Griffith says many other nations rely on a different philosophy, what's called the precautionary principle. If this chemical wasn't in the environment that people grew up in, and it wasn't something that our bodies probably had some chance to deal with, or it's not naturally occurring, you know, those kinds of things, then it can't be in the environment. So if you make some kind of a chemical, if you're going to use that chemical, then you have to responsibly track it and make sure it doesn't get into the environment. So a lot of European countries have adopted that, for example. So, you know, somebody might complain that that means that some chemical which is safe is being captured and not adding into the environment. But you can't complain that a chemical that might be a carcinogen is also not being captured. More stringent rules, such as the precautionary principle, are especially attractive for scientists who believe the effects of chemicals can't be measured individually. Like the interactions of medications, which we've often reported on, the effects of chemicals may be additive, combining to become much more dangerous than they are by themselves. Scientists don't know how to study, nor really does anybody, our circumstances where we live in a sea of chemicals. We're not exposed just to this chemical or that chemical. We're exposed to hundreds of them. And so the reality question here is, you know, let's say, you know, you live on an industrial river and there have been lots of people upstream from you putting trace amounts of stuff into the river. What's it like to live drinking very small amounts of like 600 different chemicals? Nobody knows. And there's no scientific way to study this because what scientists do is they use a principle of reductionism, which is they expose you to one chemical or they don't expose you to the chemical. And then what you do is you look at the differences between those who are exposed and those who are not exposed. But while scientists don't know much about a lot of new chemicals in our water, they're sure that one old one, lead, is exceptionally dangerous. Skyrocketing lead levels in the drinking water in Flint, Michigan, have made headlines. But according to a report by the Natural Resources Defense Council, they're far from alone. We often assume that the water coming out of our taps is safe and clean, but that isn't always the case. So what we found in our report is 
that from coast to coast, in every state in the nation, millions of people are being served by systems that have broken the rule that protects people from lead contamination in their water, at least should protect people from lead contamination in their water. That's Christy pullen Fedinic, staff scientist for the health program at the NRDC and co-author of the organization's investigation. One of the major findings from our report was that even though we found over 5,000 systems and over 8,000 violations to the lead and copper rule, that we know that systems that have significant problems like Flint, Michigan, didn't show up at all in the databases having any lead violations or any issues with lead at all. So we know that there are systems that are not in the database that should be. Fedenic says 18 million people are served by those water systems with too high lead levels and it puts children especially at risk. Lead can be extremely dangerous to developing brains. So even at levels that we once thought safe, very low amounts of lead can interrupt the way that our brain signals, the way that our brain develops, and can be really detrimental to a developing child. And these issues or these disruptions that can happen with lead can lead to cognitive issues in the future, behavioral problems, and can really affect not only individuals but entire communities. We're now finding things like kids who are exposed as infants, it doesn't take much lead exposure to drop their IQ. So it's not like you get exposed to some level of lead and you get this much of a decrease and then you get exposed to twice as much lead and you get twice the decrease. It turns out you actually get more of it, more of a relative decrease at the lower levels. So that's that. That means that, in fact, even exposure to low levels is bad for you. And then at the other end of the age spectrum, you know, when you get older, It looks like what lead does is not only creates things like hypertension in adults, it also affects your thinking, your cognition. We may live longer, but you want to live with all your marbles. Most of the time, lead gets into drinking water as it flows through lead pipes on the way to our homes, offices, and schools. We didn't know about the danger of lead when those pipes were laid down, sometimes a hundred years ago. Now we do, but Griffiths says regulations don't seem to take that into account. The reality is there's no such thing as a safe level of lead. So if you ask me about holes in the regulations, this is like one of these big ones, which is that the regulations deal with what is creaming off the top of the most risky water, if you want to think of it that way. And this has to do with the concept that there was a lot of lead in pipes and a lot of lead in water. And when these regulations were first written, like in the 1940s and then through the 70s and stuff like that, as they went through various iterations, the concept was, well, you know, lead's not good for you, but let's identify where the lead is worst and we'll identify that. And so that's why we have these action levels for lead. But the truth is, there's no level of lead that's safe. Many utilities try to coat lead service lines with a film to keep lead from contacting the water flowing through them. But Fedenic says that's far from a complete fix. And when water utilities are over the limit on lead, don't count on enforcement to make it right. It works when you have people who actually live up to the, and use this word, voluntary compliance that we're supposed to do. We've seen that a lot of communities are taken care of, if you will, by ethical and well-meaning and well-trained water professionals in their utilities or similar kinds of things. But then you have bad actors, and we rely on voluntary reporting of data. So there are examples where people have covered up bad data. 
What we found in our report was that in almost or nearly nine times out of 10, the violations that were occurring faced no formal enforcement action at all, and only 3% of the over 8,000 violations faced penalties at all. So enforcement isn't necessarily happening, especially formal enforcement, in the way that we'd like to see it happen. Griffiths wonders why we're merely talking about lead in water instead of doing something about it. He says the lack of leadership when the danger is so clear amounts to cowardice. We have a system that's basically falling apart in the United States. If al-Qaeda dumped a tasteless poison in our system that would make our kids stupid and make us develop Alzheimer's sooner and make our hypertension worse and kind of acted in an insidious way to make us all stupider and more sick and, you know, that kind of stuff, we'd be outraged. We'd go there and we'd fix it all up. There'd be a national response. But that's what we have with lead. And people are sitting on their hands. Griffith says the quality of our drinking water isn't just an environmental concern. It's a public health issue. But it's a silent one. So investment may not seem critical. Nationally, the EPA's budget has been cut by 20% in recent years. And in local communities, funding for water treatment competes with other critical needs, like police, fire, and schools. Water quality, however, affects everyone, from our children's IQ to our home's value. We can't simply take it for granted that when we turn on the tap, clean water will come out. You can find out more about all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.net. You'll also find archives of our shows there, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Reed Pence. Radio Health Journal returns with medical notes in just a moment. Medicare and their list of suppliers continue to change. So if you have diabetes, it may affect where you get your testing supplies. But rest assured that your number one doctor-recommended one-touch testing supplies are always covered by Medicare Part B at your local pharmacy and select mail-order suppliers. Dr. Brian Levy, Chief Medical Officer at LifeScan, maker of one-touch products. Some mail-order suppliers may offer a limited selection of diabetes testing supplies. They may try to switch you to a different brand, saying your current products are no longer covered. That's just not true. You are entitled to continue using the products you know and trust and that have been recommended by your healthcare professional at no additional cost. Remember, you have a choice. Stay with a number one brand used by Medicare patients. For questions about coverage or where to get your one-touch testing supplies, call 1-844-942-2654 or visit www.onetouch.com slash Medicare. Medicare Part B is not a guarantee of coverage and payment, which may be subject to coinsurance, deductible, and patient eligibility requirements. Medical Notes This Week It may be summer now, but flu season isn't that far away. However, a mainstay of past preparations is now off the table. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says flu mist nasal flu vaccine should not be used in the upcoming flu season. Studies a few years ago showed that flu mist outperformed the traditional flu shot in protecting kids. But experts now say flu mist has lost potency. Flu mist is made from a weakened form of the influenza virus, while the traditional flu shot is made from dead virus. Agency advisors say the traditional flu shot is more effective. The prescription drug epidemic is getting worse, according to an authoritative source. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism says that misuse of prescription opioid painkillers more than doubled from 2000 to 2013. Government data also finds that people who have had alcoholism are twice as likely as other people to become addicted 
to prescription painkillers. Experts say when painkillers are consumed with alcohol, the mixture can be lethal. A protein found in young people but not old ones may be the fix to clogged arteries. A study in the journal Circulation says increasing the protein IGF-1 in one type of our white blood cells could protect arteries from plaque. Experts say too little IGF-1 makes plaque composition weaken and could cause a heart attack. Researchers tested mice, and those that were given higher levels of IGF-1 had arteries with significantly less plaque than the mice that did not receive the protein. Parents want to see their children succeed, but it's important not to push them too much. A study in the Journal of Personality finds that children with intrusive parents tend to be overly critical of themselves. When parents hover over their children, kids become afraid of making mistakes. Experts call this type of behavior maladaptive perfectionism and say it may increase the risk of developing depression, anxiety, and even suicide in very serious cases. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Do you know someone with a rare disease called TGCT or tenosynovial giant cell tumor, also known as PVNS or GCTTS? This causes tumors to grow in the tissue surrounding the joint area, which can occur anywhere from a small area in the hand or foot to larger joints such as the knee, hip, shoulder, ankle, or elbow. Surgery is the main treatment option for TGCT, but in some cases, surgical removal of the tumor would cause more harm than good. If you or your loved one has advanced TGCT, there is a new clinical research study called Enliven that is now enrolling patients. Visit the Enliven Trial website at www.enliventrial.com to find out more. That's www.enliventrial.com. Speak to your doctor. See if you qualify. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.